Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me today, as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, everybody. Make sure to thank Kat because she's recording this instead of playing FIFA. I am currently, I want to play all of the sports games right now. Sports games are like RPGs. That's what I say every year. That should be my catchphrase. <laughs> we'll put it on your headstone. Sports games are RPGs, you dolts. Yeah, I've been heads down, head down all week with different sports game reviews. I wrote an NHL 19 review. I wrote an NBA 2K 19 review as of the recording of this podcast. And now I'm playing FIFA. Uh, yeah. Once FIFA's done, I'll be out of the sports game realm and I can go back to playing Dragon Quest XI. That's good to hear. Uh, although, yeah, yeah, I'd, I look forward to, pl- to talking uh, Dragon Quest XI with you. It's uh, always funny, though, to... I'm always around... I'm always in the States around the time uh, NFL comes out, and uh, I just like all the ads and stuff they have for NFL or back home. It's like, hey, NHL, everyone, buy this game, please. NHL is better than usual this year, but it's very much flying under the radar compared to all of the other sports games. Um but people often ask me, and I, I've related this on the podcast more than once ago, Kat, you like RPGs, but also you like sports games. Gua? I don't <laughs> understand the connection. And I always say, well, the connection perhaps will become apparent if you understand that Madden is just Pokemon, but with large, beefy football men. Uh, can they, like, breathe fire? <laughs> Man, I wish. That'd be an incredible thing to see from Lavian Bell or something. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think Aaron Rodgers can turn into a fucking dragon and kill everybody. That guy is unstoppable. I hate him. <laughs> Though, hopefully, by the time this podcast goes up, my beloved Minnesota Vikings will have defeated the Green Bay Packers in Lambeau Field. So I'm rooting for you. I am rooting for me, too. Thank you. All right. So this uh, we have a few things to discuss, Nadia. Uh, we're going to talk about the Nintendo Direct announcements that were made last week as of the release of this podcast and also we got a special guest joining me will be brian fargo who is the legendary rpg developer and also the founder of in exile entertainment he's had a bit of a big week this week with the release of bard's tale 4 the -hmm. recent release of the bard's tale remastered trilogy and also wasteland 2 on nintendo switch there's a lot going on so we'll talk about that and we'll also maybe talk a little bit about wasteland 3 um but first of all, Nadia, last week, there was a big Nintendo Direct. Tons of news. Way more news than I was actually really expecting from this one. Yeah, a Nintendo Directs always kind of surprise you. I always go into them thinking, oh, they probably won't have that much to really talk about. I'm sure they'll just, you know, a couple of Switch games here, a couple of 3DS games there. And it's, it's always pretty big. There's always at least something really big coming out of Directs these days. Yeah, I was caught a little bit off guard because I went in going... Oh, well, you know, they more or less kind of announced everything. Civ 6 coming to the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. So that's a game I'm never going to play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, City Skylines, okay. Mega Man 11 demo, fine, whatever. But instead they were like, no, no, Animal Crossing right here. Animal Crossing character in Smash Brothers. Yep. All of the Final Fantasy. And also a new Game Freak RPG. And I'm like, okay, okay, just, no, stop. Oh, Luigi's Mansion 3, too. Oh, my God. Yeah, we were all going crazy trying to keep up with the news. I was having trouble enough just live-tweeting it. And you guys uh, in Slack trying to keep up with the news. I felt really bad for you guys. Before we move on to the RPGs, can I just say that I'm secretly excited for the new Super Mario Bros. U on the, on the Switch? I do feel like that one got overlooked because the Wii U, of course, wasn't exactly a hot seller. And that was a, that was a very good uh, Wii U game. Not by not by Polygon. They named it the best Mario ever made. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. 
Uh, Jeremy Parrish did that, by the way. And I, I, I kid Jeremy. I kid Jeremy. But I know that he was just trying to shake things up and do something a little bit different. And New Super Mario Brothers U is actually a very good Mario game. I think it's the best New Super Mario game Brothers game by far, like in, just in terms of platformers. I actually, I think I prefer uh, 3D World. Uh, if you're talking about 2D New Super Mario Brothers uh, games, then yeah, I would easily say that's the best one. What if I told you I don't like the 3D games? Uh, I'd say you're wrong. We'll move on in a second, but let's see. If there are certain flavors of Mario game, there's like the Odyssey games, which I like. Odyssey slash uh-huh. Galaxy. I like those. Right. There are the 2D games, which would be like New Super Mario Brothers. Uh, they can be a little plain, to be mm-hmm. perfectly honest. But, you know, Super Mario Brothers 3, Super Mario World, hard to top, right? Right. And then there are the Mario World, Mario 3D Land uh, family. And I enjoyed the chaos of Mario 3D World. It was fine. It was enjoyable, but it's not my favorite, and I don't care if it ever comes to Switch. I know I'm in the minority, a lot of people, but I do care about pure, straight-up platforming, and New Super Mario Brothers. U gives that to me, so I'm very excited about that. But let's talk about something other than Mario, okay? Let's talk about Final Fantasy coming to the Switch. Yes, um, all the Final Fantasies, uh, including the first one they announced was uh, 12, the Zodiac Age, and I think Parrish said he needed a moment because he was just overwhelmed with emotion. Oh, poor P- Parrish has been Final Fantasy 12's foremost defender for a long time. Parrish, Parrish loves to fight for the underdog, as evidenced by the new Super Mario Brothers U thing. I kid Jeremy, <laughs> yeah. I kid him. But with Final Fantasy 12, uh, yeah, no, having it on the Nintendo Switch is awesome. Uh, yeah, just yeah. no other way to put it. It's a great way. It's, it'll be a great way to enjoy a overlooked gem, I feel. Uh, we've talked about it extensively on this podcast. I thought the uh, the HD remaster that came out last year was outstanding. It uh, was. Full stop. It was actually my first time playing Final Fantasy XII, and I, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it was gorgeous. It had a remastered soundtrack. Uh it was just great all around, and I think it's going to be a tremendous fit for the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, I'll probably I'll probably go ahead and buy it again. Um, I really like the world of Ivalice. I think it's by far Square Enix's most well-developed world going on in the Final Fantasy universe. Yeah, yeah, I think that, and I think we can thank Matsuno for that one. But Definitely. But in addition to Final Fantasy XII, we're also getting Final Fantasy X, Final Fantasy X-2 HD, which I think was... <laughs> Everybody was kind of wondering, like, where the heck are these? Why did it take so long? Because Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I mean, they're on everything else. They're on the freaking Vita, for God's sake. Well, ta-da. Ta-da. So, yeah, it, it felt pretty natural to finally bring those over to Nintendo Switch. And, hey, you should finally play them, Nadia. Yeah, I finally will. <laughs> I, I promise I will, finally. Though I will say that Final Fantasy X is not the greatest fit for a portable system because it has a lot of unskippable cutscenes. Mm. Uh, it's it's very kind of it's an old school ps2 experience uh, it's very it straddles the line between ps1 and ps2 in in many respects it's its pace is very deliberate right it, the the battles are very slow actually mm-hmm. people forget how slow the battles are in final fantasy 10 so it is a fine game, but not the kind of game I would be wanting to play on the road. I wonder if they're going to, you know, just kind of give you that option to speed it up a bit. Because uh, I remember uh, Final Fantasy IX, playing that on the PlayStation 4, it was a little bit faster. And, of course, you had the options to really speed things up if you wanted to. Yeah. Uh, in addition to Final Fantasy X and X-2, oh my gosh, 
They also announced Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy IX are coming oh to Nintendo Switch. I'm excited for Final Fantasy VII. I have not played Final Fantasy VII in a decade. It's time. It's time to go. Yeah, back. I'm sitting here like an idiot saying, yeah, I'm going to play this again for what must be like the 50th time <laughs> since it came out. But I really want it for my Switch. What can I say? I haven't properly finished Final Fantasy VII since two, no, 2000 probably. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you're really going to have fun going back to it and saying uh, or seeing what Square Enix really intended for this this weird-ass game that I just love to death. Well, the problem I've always had is I always get kind of slowed up in Midgar. Like, I don't feel mm-hmm. like the game truly picks up until you fight Shinra. Because right. there's yeah, that initial right. bit where you're in the, the Mako reactors, and that's exciting. That's fun. It is. Yeah, that's a really cool intro. And then everything, like, grinds to a halt mm-hmm. for the most part. And, like, everything to do with Eris, pretty boring, in my opinion. Uh, where you're pushing barrels down onto Turk soldiers, boring. I can never get that. Like, I always screw up with the barrel part. Uh, everybody loves the cross-dressing quest, but actually that quest was extremely boring and I hated it. Oh, the yeah. Don Corneo stuff. No, you're absolutely right. I could actually honestly skip that by now. Yeah, no, for sure. It, it lives in infamy. But mm-hmm. it was like a bad episode of an anime. It really was. It was a little bit uh, cliche, wasn't it? Just a little bit. And I mean, but of course, at the time, we didn't care. And then fi- like when I used to play Final Fantasy VII back in the day when I was in high school, and I, I swear to God, I beat that game a hundred times, I would just be marking time until we finally got to Shinra headquarters, at which point the game like just really took yeah. off. And then you'd get to the over the over the overworld and you'd be like, oh yeah, this is great. This is wonderful. I love this game. So but I'm looking forward to playing it. Uh yeah, me too. One game that is missing from the bunch and was deserving a lot of commentary was receiving a lot of notice from people. Final Fantasy VIII. Yes. Yeah, no Final Fantasy VIII. I, or what weird. I called the best one. I wouldn't go that far. Okay, I wouldn't go that far either. I don't think Final Fantasy VIII is the best one. It's just the it's just first best in my heart. Okay, that's fair. Um, it's it's one I I honestly would not mind giving another try because I I played it on the PlayStation One back in the back in the day. I just did not like it. So if it came out on the Switch, I'd be like, sure, I'll give this another download. I'll give it another try. But why isn't it there? That is so odd. I don't think it's odd because Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy IX are available on PC. And, and mobile, I think. And, I thought eight was too. And PS4, but not eight. Well, I mean, eight is available on PC, but it's, it's slightly oh. different than the PC port of Final Fantasy VII. Is it not on PlayStation Four? I never checked. Okay, let me take a step back. Final okay. Fantasy VII is on PS4. Final Fantasy right. Nine is on PS4. Final Fantasy right. Eight is not on PS4. Oh, okay. And these are the versions that are getting moved over to Switch. Of course, that makes a little sense. And there's a reason that Final Fantasy VIII isn't available. Because Final Fantasy VII is, of course, the big one, the most popular one. Final Fantasy IX is the critically acclaimed, successful one. The the one that uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi consistently says is his favorite in the series. Mm-hmm. And also there's Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of sandwiched in the middle. The middle child. I relate to the middle child of the series. It's the one that everybody always goes, oh, Final Fantasy VIII, blah, blah, blah. blah. Well, folks, let me tell you something. I like Final Fantasy VIII. I I tweeted earlier uh, on Friday, I still have fond memories of FF8's quirky world, the soundtrack, the bizarro story, the lunar cry, and that killer final boss battle. But I expect it doesn't hold up 
owing to how boring the draw mechanic is. And everybody yeah. pointed out that there's triple triad and you can just refine all of the cards into spells anyway, which I always did. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, that was the thing that turned me off Final Fantasy VIII when I was younger, was just the battle system. I really liked the story. I I even kind of like Squall, even though he's a, he's a douche. I really like Laguna. I love the soundtrack. It's absolutely gorgeous. So, yeah, like I said, I wouldn't mind replaying it, but um, I'm not going to be doing that for a while, I guess. I... So when it comes to Final Fantasy VIII, I think I, I think I've said this before on this podcast, but with Final Fantasy VII, it was very accessible, right? Like it was very mm-hmm. straightforward. Even if you it didn't was. know a lot about RPGs, you could just jump right in and play Final Fantasy VII and appreciate it. It right. turned a lot of people into anime. And then Final Fantasy VIII comes out, and it is big. It is bold. It is mm-hmm. gorgeous. It is huge, and it is complicated. It is it surprisingly is. complicated. People. It is full of tutorials trying to explain its crazy-ass junction system. People just right. didn't get it. People are going, what the heck is going on? Where's Cloud? <laughs> Why isn't Cloud in Final Fantasy VIII? Oh, my sweet summer child. You don't know how Final Fantasy works, I suppose. What is this world? Uh, yeah. And so a lot of people just leaned on summons, and then they were like, oh, well, summons are boring. What the heck is going on? It took if you dug in deeper, and this was the first time that I really dug in deep and broke an RPG over over my knee. Uh, you discovered something weird and wonderful and delightful. To be perfectly honest, I discovered that <laughs> I discovered that the the spells like aren't actually that important. Final Fantasy VII, you press a button, you get Fire Three, boom, enemies mm-hmm. are dead. Right? If Fire right. Th- Faraga and Final Fantasy VIII, eh, it's not that good. It's all right. Not compared. Not compared to a powered-up attack from your sword that has an elemental yeah. uh, elemental damage. Not compared to some of the really strong stuff that you can get. Uh, summons aren't nearly as powerful as limit breaks. Like I, I barely even use summons after the initial battle. And uh, I like the yeah. world a lot in Final Fantasy VIII. I think that it is one of the best realized and most interesting and underrated worlds out there. It's certainly this kind of crazy sci-fi world with time travel and sorceresses. Mm -hmm. And uh, I like it. Well, there's one thing that, one of the things that spoiled it for me a little bit is, uh, God, I think it was Sharky who said that, that, that epic opening movie with uh, what's his name and Squall doing that sword fight. It turned out they're just like having a a schoolyard fight. (laughs) When when you start the game, you're like, Oh, Oh, I guess he's right. And now they're going to go to the cafeteria and eat hot dogs. Okay. (laughs) But it was a statement of intent from it the sure game. It sure was. <laughs> it was saying, look how friggin' epic this game is. And it was epic. It was awesome. It, it was very, very theatrical. But for me, the moment the moment where Final Fantasy... If Final Fantasy VII truly gets started in Shinra, the moment when Cloud is riding down the stairs on his motorcycle, or perhaps the moment that you're standing on the rooftop fighting... Uh, Rufus, or the moment that you see Sephiroth stabbed through the, or not Sephiroth, you see uh, the President Shinra stabbed through the heart with Sephiroth's sword. But the moment that Final Fantasy VIII really starts for me is that moment when it's playing the song, I believe it's called The Landing, mm-hmm. and you see Squall's like doing a Normandy beach kind of storm yeah. beaches kind of thing. <laughs> yes, I remember that. And that incredible music is playing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that, that was so epic. The cutscenes were so good. The cutscenes in Final Fantasy VIII were really on another level. And 
then you get to uh, hear the the boss the the battle music for the first time, which is excellent. She had a huge chase scene with a boss. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, by and large, like that was just a really epic action scene all around. And then and then it slows down again a little bit. But okay, yeah, I, I do remember the storm the Normandy beach uh, scene quite well. Uh, I remember the co- the commercial used it as well um, to promote the game. I guess they were trying to. Trying to, to emulate the success uh, of Final Fantasy VII's commercial, which was very, again, theatrical. And uh, I noticed they kind of used like a whole bunch of, they did the same thing where they used a whole bunch of cutscenes and didn't really show you the gameplay itself. But uh, the cutscenes looked good. Actually, they looked very good. The game itself looked really good. It, it did. was a huge step up visually from Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, I was impressed by how, what, how what, by what a step up it was. Did you ever take the seed exam? I don't remember if I did or not. I, I can't remember what it entailed. I always liked that. Well, so the whole point of that opening scene on the beach was that it was a test. Okay. You weren't just storming the beaches and helping to la- liberate a radio tower that had been taken over uh, by Galbadia, I believe it was called. Um, yeah. You were in the middle of a test, so you were asked a lot of different, a lot of scenarios that you had to deal with, like right in the moment. For example. Mm-hmm. If you were able to escape, if you managed to do it so where you only fought the robot that chased you once, Uh you would get maximum points. If you managed to, uh, you had to figure out how to deal with uh, Cypher, who was, you know, unruly and would be trying to basically undermine your authority at every opportunity. So he was Cypher, basically. Because he was Cypher. He was a dick. Um (laughs) That played into your score. There there were right. a lot of little things, actually, and I always enjoyed that. It's uh, actually kind of funny, the way you describe it, is the way... Um, I haven't taken a test for, like, service work in, in many years, but uh, nowadays they ask you all these weird cryptic questions before they even let you apply for a job, and it kind of reminds me of that. If you were to ask to steal a thing, would you? Hmm. Mm, uh, yes. Why didn't I get hired? What's going on? But it also, of course, tied into your salary at the start of the game. And you could actually end up earning a lot of money, like a ridiculous (laughs) amount of money, if you you look up everything that you need to do early on. Right. That was one of the things that pissed me off about the game. I remember now, because I was driving around in a car, first of all. I was very offended that I had to drive around in a car. Uh, And while I was just kind of exploring, my salary went down because I I guess I wasn't earning it. I'm like, you know what? Screw this. Why am I playing Job the game? I'm out of here. I would probably play Final Fantasy VIII on the place uh, on the Switch. To be honest, uh, I think I would rather. I think I would rather play Final Fantasy VIII than Final Fantasy VII or IX because I just, out of all of the PlayStation Final Fantasies, I have the most nostalgia for that one because that was always mm-hmm. my game. So okay, I, I understand that, and I would definitely give it a try. Although I have to say that I did return Final Fantasy VIII and I got Suikoden Two, which is a good trade off if you ask me. No, that's not a bad trade off at all. But. Yeah. Yeah, in addition to Final Fantasy 7, 9, 10, 10, 2, and 12, uh, most many of which are coming to the Xbox One, I might mm-hmm. add, which is actually kind of momentous because it's the first time these games are actually on it. Uh, a whole bunch of other games, including World of Final Fantasy, which, I mean, whatever, like you could stack characters a, on top of one another. They were that cute. was a weird, cute game. I remember playing the demo and enjoying it, but not really enough to buy the full thing. I remember Parrish liked it. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, too. a whole bunch of people 
or enjoying World of Final Fantasy. Not really my thing, even though I normally like all-star team-up type games, mm-hmm. but yeah, so, but yeah, that's going to be on Nintendo Switch and Xbox One and PS4. And also, uh, oh yes, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles coming to Nintendo Switch. That is a very interesting game, because I remember it was the first game that Square Enix made after they and Nintendo made up after their big breakup with the over the, uh, the Nintendo 64. Yeah, uh, made up, quote unquote. Quote unquote, yeah. As in, like, Square Enix was allowed through the door. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody had a gun trained on them anymore as they came into the door, yeah. Yeah, there were... If you ever read uh, Matt Leone's huge oral history of Final Fantasy VII... I did. It was fantastic. The stories range uh, vary a little bit when it comes to the... Uh, vary a little bit when it comes to Nintendo's following out with Square Enix, but... Mm-hmm. Some of them were saying uh, Nintendo understood that it was just business, but like Yamauchi like was kind of salty about it. And other people were like, yeah, Nintendo told us don't even bother effing coming in through the door ever again. So, yeah, I'd love to know like the the full story, the full truth behind that. But you're never going to get it. But uh, Leon's story was just fantastic. I also seem to recall, according to that same oral history, uh, Square Enix straight up told Nintendo, look, your system has to be, number one, it has to be more powerful. Number two, it really has to have CDs. And uh, Yamauchi told them to take a hike. So they tried. The interesting thing about Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, of course, was that it tied into, <laughs> it's very much of its time because it tied into Nintendo's big initiative to have the GBA connect to the GameCube. Yeah. And of course, thing. you had to have four GBAs, which was not, which was suboptimal. Yeah, and I think, I believe four link cables. Yes, and four link cables, which... uh, But, you know, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles was a good game. You know, I have to say this much for it. It had a fantastic soundtrack. I still listen to it. Uh, Excellent soundtrack. uh, A very enjoyable group multiplayer game uh, because Mm -hmm. you had one person having to carry the pot because the pot was what was protecting you from uh the the dangers and you had to protect the pot because there was a poison mist and everything but yeah very cool little cooperative multiplayer uh action rpg that i don't feel like ever really got truly appreciated in its time i i think later final fantasy crystal chronicle games became more monster hunter-ish i think i haven't played any of them but um i think this one that the the re-release coming out has online features so that's a pretty good substitute I don't care about online features, but I, I think that if I get it, I'm just going to play it with uh, with my friends. Ah. And it's finally a chance to be able to play Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles without a GBA. Yeah, that, and, a, and a GameCube and a bunch of Link cables. Yeah, so lots of Final Fantasies coming out. Uh, and one more other thing that I think that's getting a little underrated is Game Freak just announced a new RPG called Town. Yes. Which I... I don't think anybody is really... I don't think it's on anybody's radar, but I think it should be on people's radar because Game Freak puts out really good games. They really do. they working on Pokemon. Yeah, I mean, look at Pocket Card Jockey. It's one of the best games on the 3DS, frankly. Yes, I totally agree. So I am definitely look, uh, I am looking forward to seeing more from this. And I believe they did like a kind of a rhythm RPG a while back that was mm. also very good. They, they make very good games outside of Pokemon. They also did Tembo the Badass Elephant. <laughs> That's right. How can you not love Tembo? Exactly. I will definitely be keeping an eye on this one. It looks very pretty. Like, it from does. From a graphical standpoint. And Game Freak always does a really good job of sneaking in really interesting mechanics into its uh, games. And of mm-hmm. course, these guys are, you know, 
they're the Pokemon guys. They know how to make an RPG. So. Yeah, there, there's a reason Nintendo has been using them for basically as long as as they've as Pokemon's been around. So lots uh, to be excited about for the Nintendo Switch in 2019. Uh, I think you know the Switch has been kind of dominated by. Uh, ports to some extent to the point that frankly it's gotten a little tiresome at times but Mm -hmm. so i'm not that thrilled (laughs) you know i'm not like oh my god game changer look at all these final fantasy games final fantasy pocket edition finally coming to nintendo switch (laughs) yay (laughs) but i do think that is nice and i i will be especially excited if they can get final fantasies one through six and Mm. more or less complete the the complete collection on uh, on the Nintendo Switch, except for 11 and 14, but who gives a crap about 11? Oh, uh, 11. Final Fantasy 11 fans care about 11, I know. but I actually have my former grooming manager. Her husband still plays Final Fantasy 11 from time to time with his friends. That's weird. Well, I still play Ragnarok online sometimes. So. There's a much better Final Fantasy RPG out there. It's called Final Fantasy 14. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but some people just love old-ass uh, MMORPGs. I'm still mad that it's it was numbered. Yeah, that, yeah, that that is very confusing to me. It's just screw them for numbering it. Just, like, screw them for numbering Dragon Quest X. Yeah, that, that makes me even madder. Yeah, it's like, in my mind, you have disrupted the numbering scheme. Now, like, now you forever it's broken. <laughs> it's, my, it's the OCD part of me talking. We're going to move on to interview with Brian Fargo, so don't go away. All right, with me now is a man who should need no introduction. He is the founder of In Exile Entertainment. He has made many wonderful games, most especially The Bard's Tale, and that is Brian Fargo. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. It's been a big week for you, Brian. I see you're releasing Bard's Tale 4. Uh, Wasteland 2 just came to the Nintendo Switch. We just got a remastered version of the original Bard's Tale. Uh, I mean, tell me tell me some of your emotions as all these games are coming out. I guess when it rains, it pours, right? Uh, well, I, uh, got, I mean, every day is a different emotion. I mean, always the, the, the new titles always... Uh, work me up the most, right? I mean, with Bard's Tale 4, it's, it's a brand new thing. Uh, uh, the, the conversions are great. It's been awesome because it's amazing how many people on the Switch, for example, already own the game and are excited to, to replay it again uh, in a portable uh, size. So that's, that's cool. I love reading that, especially because we put so much depth into the game that there's things that you would never even notice unless you did play it two or three times. So that's cool. And then the remaster was kind of an appetizer for Bard's Tale 4. And uh, gosh, I mean, we we charted it in the top role-playing games on Steam, which is awesome for a game that's 30 years old. And uh, and that's been fun for people that either haven't played it or to kind of remind them of, of why they liked it to begin with. And then, of course, uh, here comes the big baby, Bard's Tale 4, next Tuesday. So with Bard's Tale 4... I got to play it. Uh, GDC came out as a beta for backers back in July. And the first thing that it threw me back to was the Return to Zork, which was an adventure game that came out in 1993, 94. That was notable for the first time because you got to see the White House. Like it was right there. And I, I was thinking of the same thing with Bard's Tale 4. You get to see Scarabray in all of its glory. And I mean, it's kind of a really cool moment, isn't it? 
It was. A, it, it is a great moment. I remember another great moment was being in Mangar's tower, and, and going, "Oh, this is fantastic. This is what it looks like," and 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 uh, dealing with some of those old nemesis again. It's it's not. It's only a tiny spoiler, but uh, you know, a lot of those uh, the icons of the series make their way back. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's because um, I have the same. Or similar nostalgia to people. So when I'm, you know, there's Roscoe's, you know, the grandson of Roscoe's running his shop. That's like, oh yeah, I remember that. And when they play Falcon Teen's Fury, and so yeah, I think it's a nice mix of uh, of, uh, of of new material uh, with with the, the, a lot of the old ones that kind of that, that hit the chords of uh, making you feel good. Tell me about recreating these settings in a way that feels like that really touches on upon like the nostalgia of the original Bard's Tale that are that is fit that is faithful but also feels fresh and interesting yeah and that's all that's always the tricky part right which is that is that especially as it relates to world building because like there the, I know that one is there's a lot of people that, that that played the game at a point in their lives that, that they can never recreate themselves uh, which is they were in college or they played it when they were young with their parents or whatever. And so, you know, there's an emotional attachment to those things. And then there's also a, a perceived memory of, of how, how deep the world the world really was, right? And like world building, for example, has come a long way since um, those games. Uh, you couldn't, for example, come out with a fantasy game today and you know, also have ninjas and Nazis and all the crazy stuff we did in part, some of the Bard Cell series. So we had a, we really want to look back and say, what are the things that, that, that we thought were super important to people, which is they wanted, they wanted a dungeon explorer. They want to walk around and feel like they're into it. They want to have a party that they control so they get all the tactical combat that goes with it, you know, some of the puzzle solving, the music, you know, so we tried to strike on all of the things that we thought were uh, the people told us that they loved with the original series, but bring it into a, a more modern package to recognize that game. there are some gameplay uh, you know, ways of approaching things that have changed since then, right? Anything from save games to, to UI, etc. So our job is to kind of thread that needle between making sure that the old players are, are feeling like they're revisiting a comfortable place, yet player, players that have never played the game and, have, and have, not, have only played games for the last 10 years and are only familiar with modern gaming are also comfortable, that they don't feel like they're just being thrown back to some kind of remaster or something. So uh, I feel pretty darn good that we sort of uh, straddled that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, Bard's Tale was, of course, a really interesting inflection point in RPG history. Um, people should go check out Jeremy Parrish's ongoing series about the history of RPGs, in which he makes Bard's Tale in a, kind of an important centerpiece of that. And he talks about how it was one of the second wave of RPGs that came in the 80s. And one of the things that was really interesting was that it put a big emphasis on buffs and debuffs through the kind of eponymous bard. And uh, one of the things that you've always seemed to really emphasize uh, in your games is this idea of kind of nonviolent solutions uh, to things. And I feel like that's a, a big bar part of Bard's Tale. 
Um, is it fail to say? Fair, is it safe to say that those are the things that you found most important to nail in Bard's Tale Four? Well, I I think that so when you're when you're doing this type of game, you, you, combat's going to be the, the main centerpiece of what you're going to be doing the most time, and so that we know that that's the core of the product, and so to me. I look at it that I think what's important is that there are many different ways to play it, right? To me, what's like I want you to play a Bard's Tale four, and you tell me why well, I went with you know all bards, or I went with a, this kind of combination, or I ended up using a lot of summon creatures, or you know, or, or my my party was constantly drunk and that worked well for me, you know, whatever whatever style it is. Like we like, I've always liked to make it so that you can make your own style of approaching the play to to a strategy that you sort of feel like you've developed yourself, and in which case you have, because we put a lot of variables in. We create a lot of edge cases. And so it, we, we, we set it up so that it has a sort of an emergent style to what's best. So even within our own company, we find people playing it in different ways. I was watching a guy play the other day, and I was like, wow, I never had tried. I didn't even occur to me to try that before. And uh, to me, that's what I like to see. One of the things that I find really interesting about Bard's Tale 4 is that you incorporate puzzles into the actual weapons. And I'm curious, could you tell me a little bit about designing that and also why you decided to do that, um, to add that gameplay layer to it? You know, I was really moved by playing some puzzle games. I don't know if you ever played The Room and, and on iOS. And I thought, you know, it's so interesting, just the kind of the physical manipulation of objects and I say physical, but you're still on a screen. But that sense of it, I found very rewarding, satisfying. And and I thought, gosh, you know, you're always exploring sort of at a macro level. It's like, you know, we're, we're always looking into space, but, you know, there's also the microscope. So wouldn't it be fun to take some of the weapons and bury some really deep secrets into them that you could unveil to make them more powerful? And, uh, and, and I think it really resonated. People responded super positively towards it. I mean, we... You know, you get these weapons early on in the game, and you know, the the first puzzle is pretty easy. The second one's not too bad, but you know, the third and fourth, not so easy. And uh, it's going to be fun because there'll be there'll be these weapons in the game that people you know, they'll be digging through Reddit to figure out how to unlock you know the ultimate of what they can do. So, and, and I think what's also kind of a fun emotion is that that it's actually I think some people won't even figure it out for a long time. Right, they'll 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 pick it up, and then the, one day they'll look at it in their inventory. Because you could take any item in your inventory, and and sort of rotate it around and look at it, right? But all of a sudden you do it with that one, and all of a sudden you see something you've never seen before. You think, God, I've been playing the whole game, and I could have just inserted a gem into the hilt and made my life easier. So I like the sense of discovery at a smaller level, in addition to the big level. This is an in exile game, uh, in exile's first. RPG, you guys have obviously done Torment, Tides of Numenera, Wasteland 2, but it seems to me that Bard's Tale 4 is probably the most elaborate, uh, most technically sophisticated RPG that you've done to date. You put on Unreal Engine 4. Uh, tell me a little bit about like developing an RPG that, uh, while the other games were certainly complicated, uh, they weren't as technically uh, perhaps as ambitious as Bard's Tale 4. Yeah, with Bard Cell 4, to me, it started off with immersion was the most important thing. And so when I, 
you know, when I did the original Bard Cell series, I mean, you know, it started off with Wizardry back in the day, and then Bard Cell was in color, you know, wow, <laughs> right? And then, uh, and then, you know, then we had like Stonekeep, which was full screen, but, you know, but it's not like today's visuals. So I haven't, there hasn't been much uh, in terms of people taking a look at this category and saying, let's use modern technology and really go for it, right? And I won't say we're the only dungeon crawl, right? I mean, some people, they consider Dark Souls a dungeon crawl. But as far as, you know, sort of non-Twitch-oriented, uh, of course, there was Grimrock, which was a solid product. But I wanted to sort of use all the latest and greatest technology and visual effects guys to, to, to see what it was like to feel like you're in a dungeon. And so that was charter number one, and that led us towards the Unreal Engine. Uh... I also we had a, we have a lot of wonderful 3D artists and VFX artists here, and it was an opportunity to show off uh, what we could do using all that. So you you are correct in that it was I mean it, it's an ambitious game. It's probably the most expensive one we've done. Um, it, again, you, 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 the, the the models themselves it's different when you're when you're isometric and the models are very small. You know, you can have hundreds of them, but 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 you know, you can't do hundreds of super high res models. So it's a different approach. Each one has to really, you know, really look super. Uh, and um, you know, it's uh, I, I so I get to I get to to some degree I get to play the game like a new person would, and I really it's like it reminded me of why I fell in love with this category to begin with, right? Because I'm not really, a, I'm not a Fortnite kind of guy or a Twitch kind of guy. You know, I, that's not my thing. So I, I really love games where I can sit back and take in the atmosphere. You know, like Bioshock to me was a one, did a wonderful job of atmosphere. I love that. So to, 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 to have kind of the dungeon crawl where I get to sit back and I'm not rushed and I can take it all in and I can feel I'm there and, and kind of that feeling of like, Ah, just 30 more minutes, you know, playing 30 more minutes, one more dungeon, one more thing. It completely took me over in that way. And it, it, and it took me back to why I loved that category and fell in, and fell in love with, the, the, with gaming to begin with. I think the thing that I find most interesting is we think of first-person dungeon crawls as kind of this old-school PC genre, subgenre, but Japan kind of borrowed that genre and turned it into games like Etrian Odyssey and that kind of thing and had a lot of success for it. So it's been really interesting to see it come back to kind of its Western roots with Bart's Tale 4. Just out of curiosity, have you played any kind of the Japanese versions of, say, like Wizardry or Etrian Odyssey or that kind of thing? The the only one I I, um, I, I kind of fooled around a little bit was with Persona 5. And it, it is sort of ironic because I think the consoles have done have focused more on kind of party-based role-playing games in many ways, and I have heard comparisons to some of the Japanese games, and even even Puzzles and Dragons is really it's a dungeon crawl to some degree. So I don't know why it was abandoned as a category here or considered secondary because it's so darn much fun. It, it'll be interesting to see if we can kind of re. You sort of bring that back and, and, and make that something that other developers focus on again. Because, uh, I mean, you know, you've been playing these for a long time, so uh, you, you know how much fun they can be. 
You have a really complicated and interesting relationship with Bard's Tale. For a long time, you didn't have the actual license for the gameplay. I think you had the name. And so as a result, you made kind of an action RPG in the mid-2000s. This is your chance to kind of finally revisit this series that you have so much history with. Uh, What's that been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always wanted to revisit properly, and, and as you say, I, I just didn't have the rights to the copyright uh, back in 2002, so we ended up kind of doing this fun little parody of role-playing games. Um, but but this is a real serious uh, s- sort of take at what would Bardstow would have been. And, and one of the things I like to remind people of is that it, it's like, it's almost not like, it's like not Bardstow 4, but Bardstow 14. Right, meaning like what would have happened had the series continued, right? Because obviously a Bard's Tale 4 that came out in 1995 would be very different than perhaps what we're doing here. I mean, most most undoubtedly. Um, I uh, I love revisiting these old franchises. I hope I get, you know, I, I want to keep working on them. They're great. Uh, so it, it's been bliss, really. It's been the, all the nostalgia and, and finding the touch points. And, and again, just remembering how much fun this style of gameplay is. So you've done Bard's Tale, you're working on Wasteland 3, you've done Torment Tides of Numenera. Where to next? Are you going to do Torment Tides of Numenera 2, or are you going to pick up something new, do you think? I'd like to have a combination of... I I, I don't mind doing these old ones, I quite enjoy it, uh, but I think think something new is probably going to be on the horizon. Oh, that'd be interesting. Uh, so jumping over to Wasteland 2 really quickly, when I talked to you during the development of Torment Tides of Numenera, um, I asked, "Is would this game perhaps be a good fit for the Nintendo Switch? And you were like, yeah, I don't think it's going to be a good fit for the Nintendo Switch. It's a different audience, that kind of thing. But with uh, Wasteland 2 coming out on the Switch, you seem to have come around quite a bit on Nintendo's console. I did. I took a lot of grief for that answer, too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, you know, I uh, that was really my bad. And I in, in my mind, I was I must have been showing my age because I thought of the Nintendo audience as being younger, and and so uh, I didn't think it'd be something they'd enjoy. Uh, but uh, you know, talking to our fans, they were like, "No, we really would love that." And so, based upon that, I said, "All right, well, maybe 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 it would be great for the Switch." And so we did it. Uh, technically, it was very difficult. It's a good large footprint. And and sure enough, they love it. So yeah, that was a uh, you know I, I just uh, I uh, it was probably not a good response, but uh, <laughs> you know it, I uh, people love it now, so it's great. So you know if our fans are happy, we're happy. So it's been several years now since Wasteland Two has come out. Uh, looking back on it, uh, was it kind of everything that you kind of hoped that it would be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I it's 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 I think it set us up very well to do more. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's got a very high Metacritic. Our, our, our users love it. I mean, it, it's the most asked about thing I do. When is the next wasteland? I mean, it just comes up constantly. So I think in that way, mission accomplished. Uh, I, uh, you know, I love post-apocalyptic, obviously, having been involved with this and Fallout. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. I'm very happy with it. The, uh, I mean, you know, me as a creator, we always look at you know ways to do better. Uh, I very much like the direction we're taking with uh, with Wasteland Three. It's going to be a, a, mu- a much tighter experience. Uh, 
and uh, uh, deeper in many ways. Uh, so, uh, and then I think the multiplayer aspects of it is going to be fun for friends to play it with each other in a in a narrative structure. We got a pretty meaty update on Wasteland Three back in April. Uh, but for the most part, you guys seem to have had your heads down working on it. Uh, I see that you have a targeted date for 2019. Could you kind of give us an update on how things are going uh, in general on Wasteland 3? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. I mean, you, we, really, we, we really wanted to get our hands around the storytelling at a deep level. And, when I, and what I mean by that is like every conversation in the game, every interaction – you can already play the game from start to finish. Um, the graphics don't look good, and there's lots of issues with it, uh, but the, all the bones are there. And so now we spend the next year really filling out the bones, making sure that we're selling the right points, that, 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 that we're uh, striking the right nuanced uh, approach to things, to making sure combat is, is, is tactically great and visually super rewarding. Uh, you know, we, we're bringing the camera down for, for, for key conversations in the game. So we want those to be sort of uh, wildly strange and entertaining. Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a real step up uh, uh, in terms of experience from Wasteland uh, 2 to 3. Yeah, it sounds like Wasteland 2 was your take of we're going back to the we're going back to the old, old days of RPGs. And in that respect, it's very geared toward the hardcore it's very deliberate in its pace, um, in its systems and everything. Whereas Wasteland Three is like, eh, now, now let us have a more modern take on the series. Uh, is that kind of fair to say? A little bit, I think. A little bit. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, so with Wasteland One, the key you just type you just type in a single word, and things had progressed more towards conversation and dialogue trees. Well, we were afraid to go too far because we didn't want to. You know, sort of, we didn't want to abandon the roots of number one too much. But then as we got it, we put the keywords in, and then it was, well, you, you'd like, you would choose a keyword, but let's say the keyword was help. Well, am I asking for help? <laughs> or, or am I, you know, or is he, what, or, or, or am I offering help? You know, what's going on? So then we ended up having to put sentence structure to be clear as to what, what each word you would say. Um, so, now we're like, look, people prefer dialogue trees. That's the way to go. And, and, and so it was a hybrid. So I think that's a good, an example of something where we think it's going to much make the product much better to get away from trying to back into a keyword system by giving a full dialogue structure like the Fallout series or any of the other ones, right? So uh, things like that we're innovating on, uh, certainly visually. Um, I, I, I don't, we don't want to lose some of the hardcoreness, right? I mean, we, we know, I mean, it, it's mature, period, end of story. It's got some rough subject matter, and, and uh, we, we think it's the, the, we think it's a harsh, brutal world, and, and we're not going to lose that. Uh, we might do things like focus on accessibility for the first hour. So I think it's a little daunting, for example, in Wasteland 2, that you got to create all your characters, right? It's square zero. You know, maybe we let you uh, look work your way into it over a small period of time rather than throw it all at you at one time things like that for accessibility but in many ways it'll still be hardcore so so how's in exile entertainment going uh, generally you guys have several games under your belt now um you seem to be moving into more ambitious projects if you think about 
what how the business has changed in just the last few years. In 2014, the AA budgets were probably around $5 million, roughly, right? And so you got the big companies, the small companies, but they're us, Obsidian, Larian, Ninja Theory, right? In the last couple of years, now all of a sudden you're seeing the, quote, the double A's start spending $15 million plus. And so that has greatly changed. So all of us are needing to step up our game uh, because of the success people are having that are spending 10 or $15 million, And the expectations on the consumer is, is kind of pushing us along to spend more. Uh, so that has greatly changed our business in terms of user expectations. But as usual, we are uh, beholden to hoping our product finds its audience. Uh, it's all about that. We, we, we you know, we, Bard's Tell 4, I mean, people say they want single-player role-playing games. You know, they want deep games. Uh, they want unique uniqueness, which I think we've done with the combat system. So we're really, gosh, we're in the user's hands to hope they really, really, like I said, resonates with what, with what they enjoy playing because that way I can keep keep doing it. Uh, uh, you know, w once you fail to have that happen, then, then you've got a real problem because of the huge expenses at hand. But that's just the reality of the entertainment business. So that's partly why uh, Bard's Tale 4 is so much more elaborate uh, than uh, perhaps some of your previous games from a visual standpoint, just because uh, you're you're feeling pressure to really step up your game from a from a visual standpoint and uh, the amount of money you spend. Yeah, I, you have to. I mean, even even for the guys that are spending more than me, you know, I mean, we're over 10, but, but you know, uh, I mean, we, we try to reflect it in the price, right? So we're not trying to get $60 for our game. Uh, in fact, Bardstell, I have to say, we, we, we I mean, we're, we're $35 for a 40-plus hour game with those visuals. I think that's, I think that's great. We, we, we couldn't charge 60 for this. Uh, because of you know people are going to look at uh, Battlefield or Call of Duty and they don't care what the budgets are they're going to just look at the visuals end of story right so I, I think so anyway I, I'm sort of rambling on a little bit here but uh, we we have had to step up our game and and uh, and uh, here we are but uh, for the most part you guys things seem to be going pretty well for you and it seems like the the space for kind of interesting independent really deep RPGs is really good right now I mean. Certainly, from the perspective of the success of Divinity: Original Sin, for example. Yeah, I mean, we all we all are envious at that. There's no question. Um, I mean, ask me next week how I feel <laughs> after after we go live. I mean, you know, we, we I'm I'm naturally always I'm always worried, right? I mean, that's that's my job as CEO to always be concerned. I mean, early previews from the press were fantastic. Our our backers like it. We put out the videos. It's you know ninety nine to one positive. I mean, it's all all the signs are there, but it's still a super scary business because uh, there's so many great games coming out every single week. You know, it's Spider Man came out, uh, Tomb Raider came out today. We're coming out Tuesday. There's another RPG coming out the following week. You know, people can only afford so much, right? So it's it's got to be really really special. So in that way, it's always scary no matter what. Are you guys planning on sticking with crowdfunding going forward? Uh, it depends on the success of the games. Maybe um, part of me really likes it because I like the connection and and, and Wasteland Three is going to be a, a fun one because um, the uh, you know we share in the profits with our with our fans, which is kind of cool. 
So I suspect they're going to love that if they start making money. Uh, there, there is a point, I think, like if you're Larry and you sell two and a half million copies of, of a game, it's kind of hard to go back to crowdfunding. Uh, I think people might not look on it uh, kindly, but but I, there are parts, in, like I said, I've always said there's parts of it I like that are that are secondary to the funding, which is the connection of the community and help, helping to, to amplify the signal of our games coming out, right? We have a, a small army of backers with 20 or 30,000 people that are all, have all prepaid for it. They've all made it happen. They're all going to get their copies, and we're hoping they're going to love it and tell all their friends, and then all of a sudden we have... Uh, a big rep force uh, recommending uh, to buy our games. So looking back, I suppose this is my final question, looking back on Wasteland and Torment, Tides of Numenera, uh, what's been the single biggest lesson that you've learned that you've taken into Bard's Tale 4? I know that uh, Torment, Tides of Numenera in particular uh, needed a few updates to really truly get up to speed. Well, I think I think the biggest thing you, you have to do with crowdfunding, and, 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 and we did not... We did not do a good job with this with Torment. Was it under promise and over deliver, right? Day one. And so with this, we we have, I mean, like I said, we told our backers, the people that, yeah, it'd be a 25 hour game. And, and it's, a, it's a 40 plus hour game. I mean, it's massive. You know, we never said we were going to have, you know, all that music and all the top Gallic singers in the world. And I don't think they, I think they, they thought they were going to be in a dungeon the whole time. They didn't know they were going to be traveling across the sea and going and going um, into towns and into, uh, villages and and you know through the forest, they just their expectations were were lower than what than what was actually delivered, and I think that's probably the most important thing to try to take away from a crowdfunding campaign, which is always tricky, right? Because there's a friction. On one hand, you want to get them excited enough to to back you, but you but you don't want but you want to keep some things back so that when they get it, they're pleasantly surprised. And I think we've done that in spades with this. I know you're a busy guy, but are you going to be playing Fallout 76 when it comes out in a couple months? Uh, most definitely. I, I, I'll be very curious to see what their their how that feels, right? I, I understand they're they're trying to thread a couple of different needles there, which is interesting. And so uh, I'll, I definitely want to see uh, how that feels when it comes out. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you know, Wasteland 3 is going multiplayer and Fallout's going multiplayer. Everybody's going multiplayer. <laughs> well, but, you know, with us, with Wasteland 3, though, it's like there is, there is, there's, there's no, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it's a first player narrative game through and through, right? It just happens to be that you, we don't even, we don't set it up. So you, it's not set up. So you bring a stranger in and play. It's only for your friends. And so you basically are able to split it up and play with it. So, uh, you know, divinity did a great job, right? I don't think people were, would consider that, a, you know, a, uh, you know, any kind of takeaway from the single player experience. So we're trying to do it in a way that's actually going to beef it up and focus heavily on, how can the narrative be improved by two of us playing together? So, so I think that the uh, I understand the kind of the angst of uh, of some of those franchises going multiplayer, but but at least for us with Wasteland, we're still focused on that experience in a big way. Brian Fargo, thanks for coming on the podcast. Bard's Tale Four available on PC. Look forward to it tomorrow as the release of this podcast. Um, and Brian, uh, look forward to chatting with you again. All right, we're back with Nadia, and Nadia, last week we reviewed Dragon Quest XI, no spoilers, so if you missed that, you should go totally check that out, and here are some comments 
from the readers as usual. Matcom26 says, I've been pumped for DQ11 for a very long time, but the comments about battling Saber Cubs sent some unexpected chills. Let's get a mod on that ASAP, please. <laughs> yeah, there's actually someone put up a video that I, ret- I retweeted um, of the Saber Cub just kind of frolicking on its back while uh, during the battle scene. So it's just like, ugh, God damn it, Square Enix. I'm going to murder you now. You're so cute. Aww. Kill or be killed, cat. No. No. <laughs> I'm happy to allow this adorable little thing to rip my throat out. Okay, that's fair. Great Lord Abs who says he's great in battle and is enjoyably written, but I would like Silvando a lot more if he had a better voice actor. The guy who plays him ha- has a few decent moments here and there, but more than not, he defaults to an unconvincing imitation of Fez from the 70s show, but with, shall we say, lispier, stereotypically gay mannerisms. Um, I didn't hear a lisp, to be honest with you. Uh, I, ge- I guess um, some people may perceive it that way. Uh, Silvando has uh, continued to be a very interesting, divisive character. Uh, for example, uh, Jim Sterling talked about him on his show, and uh, Sterling, if I'm not mistaken, is bi, and he adores Salvando uh, because he is he himself, Jim, is so into like that kind of campy sort of flair. Uh, he goes around dressing as like flair, like uh, wrestlers with like a lot of flair, and he has his own character, Duke Dardcore, who is like a aristocrat who reads uh, YouTube comments, and so I can see like someone being really into that sort of thing, like just loving Silvando. But on the other hand, I have another person on my tweet who just found him really offensive. So I guess this is really person by person thing. Cam Chow says, "I'm loving DQ11 so far. The music isn't great, but honestly, an orchestra isn't going to save the soundtrack. The real problem is the lack of variety. The overall music." That overworld music might honestly be the worst piece of Japanese game music I've heard in a long time. <laughs> though I might not though I might not hate it so much if it wasn't the song I'm here being played most of the time. Forest, desert, swamp, island, cursed farmland, doesn't matter. It's all the same damn song. Such a baffling design choice. I guess it's because it's just old school style overworld music, but it just doesn't feel right in a game like this where there really isn't that old style overworld map and everything is zoomed in and detailed. I don't know, man. There could be one thing um, I would change. I just want some more music. Actually, uh, without going into too much detail, the post-game does change up the map music. Sorry, it's still a remix of an old song, but uh, it's, 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 it's good to have a change. Rider Kicker says, You gals are giving me intense FOMO in regards to DQ11 because I, I don't have the funds to buy it at the moment. DQ8 was a masterpiece of a game, and Level 5 managed to keep me hooked onto the PS2 for more than two hours at a time especially compared to the other entries in the series, which I did beat, but only because they were portable. If both of you say it expands on the concept of eight and it does so much more, crying. Mm-hmm, yeah. It is, it is very much an eight, but a really great eight. An eight-two. Set of Light of Love says, Savando is but a taste of the glory that is Olivier, Bishy Sparkles. Earthbound's run over Lobby enemies sing is one of those things that got lost in Gen 5 in the rush for loading, loading, slow pan, intro animations, cinematic battles. <laughs> That's very true. That's a good point. Well, there's a reason that the SNES was the best for console RPGs. Um, that's a that's a conversation for another day, but I am really torn between the SNES and the PS1, to be honest with you. Oh, no, the SNES beat the crap out of the PS1. I don't know. I just love the PS1 RPGs so much. They just don't hold up. I mean, yeah, Suikoden 2, Suikoden 2 holds up, but that's because it's a SNES RPG in PS1 form. 
Yeah, I agree with that, but I still love, like, Breath of Fire 3, and I still love Final Fantasy 7, we were just talking about that, and Final Fantasy 9, I still love that, like... Yeah, but 7 and 9 just aren't as good as the SNES games. Mmm, like I said, a conversation uh, for another day. Yeah, it's a conversation we're having now, Nadia. <laughs> <laughs> you got two hours, let's do this. I think we got two hours. The challenger says... Funny, I was just talking to my sister about how RPGs start off difficult and then get progressively easier the further you make it into the story. I came to the conclusion that I like the old school difficulty scaling. However, it doesn't hurt to change it up or throw out an established norm every once in a while. Change is necessary too. Contrast that with something like RE4 where the whole difficulty curve is flipped. And finally, Johnny Boy 407 says, I like Earthbound, but I'm not in like with it. I, I guess what he means is in love with it. Ditto to all the points made, the podcast about how battles work in the world and how there's no big world map, just a lot of interconnected areas like Pokemon. I also appreciated the HP counter and so much that you could save a character from dying if you could heal them from a lethal blow before their HP ran out. Had a bunch of interesting ideas that you didn't see in very many of its contemporaries or predecessors. No love for Pooh? I'm actually curious if Cat or Nadia ever went through the grind fest to get his Sword of Kings. Hell no, I did it. Because yeah, that, that was so random. I hate random drops. Fuck random drops. We're talking about 1 in 256 or something ridiculous like that. I think I actually responded to that comment directly with no and hell no. <laughs> Absolutely not. But Earthbound, number 16 on our top 25 RPG countdown at list. And Mass Effect, number 15. You're probably wondering, where's number 14 on our top 25 RPG list? Well, that's going to be next week because we got a little bit of a spe- surprise coming up next week yeah it's gonna be fun it's gonna be a whole week's worth of surprises so please look for that and number 14 on our list totally ties into that so it'll be fun right nadia it's gonna be fun i'm gonna have a good time i'm, I'm racking my brain trying to remember what the surprise was yes yes it'll be fun <laughs> i agree and next is blood god is the u.s gamer podcast you can find us on itunes stitcher wherever podcasts are sold we're in the middle of review season at the moment you can mm. i mean if you're into that kind of thing just go check out all of my reviews of the sports games we also got reviews of spider-man shadow of the tomb raider destiny pretty much all the coverage that you could possibly want it, i i know that people who listen to this podcast are off, often skewed toward japanese games well katie wrote a really excellent uh retrospective slash kind of yeah, like look back from Suda Fifty One about Killer Seven. It was an excellent article. Even if you didn't play the original, I totally recommend checking it out. And Nadia, what have you been up to this week? Oh, let's see. Uh, I actually just put up <laughs> an article. Uh, apparently, Japan has uh, Kirby cat hoods, so I put up a little article rating the cat hoods because I think that's that's very important. And I also wrote about uh, a clinic in uh, australia that's using skyrim to advertise vasectomies so as you can see i am as usual the one who's out there hitting the hard topic because no one else will do it of course now that i'm out of the sports game malu now i'm moving on to uh forza horizon <laughs> that's so <laughs> rpg like right driving yeah. it's kind of, i pretend it's a horse no no I, i'm not gonna i'm just, i, I want to get back to dq11 and witcher 3 frankly but duty calls Duty Not, Calls, and also Valkyria Chronicles 4, which I'm oh getting yeah, into well right that, now. No, that's a game we'll be talking about. Uh, we will Absolutely. be talking about that on our podcast relatively soon. But So, yeah, follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Are you enjoying the podcast? Please leave us a review over on iTunes. Tell us how wonderful we are. We love hearing uh, from people who enjoy our show and 
It helps make the podcast more visible. Thanks to Nadia and, of course, Brian Fargo for coming on the show. We'll be back next week. And until then, happy adventuring. Oh,